Now, we are having a reception to enjoy some fellowship together after the worship service in the fellowship hall um, as we have new elders that have been ordained. So please, be, uh, please come join us for that after the service because I know I'll forget to say it at the end. <laughs> All right. Maybe you've heard the term imposter syndrome. It's kind of been a buzzword as of late. Or maybe imposter phenomenon or imposterism. It's kind of a buzzword because a lot of us actually experience this. In fact, I might argue that we all experience it. Back in 1968, it was a a term that was used to describe the sense of, in particular, in the initial study, young women who had started joining the workforce and felt that they never quite fit in. They started to doubt their skills, talents, or accomplishment, and even had a persistent internalized fear of being exposed as a fraud. And since that initial study, it's been made quite evident that this isn't about women in the workplace. This is what we all experience in some measure in our lives. Me being a pastor, guess what? I sin. I feel like a fraud. You as a boss, you probably don't lead perfectly all the time. You feel like a fraud. Every parent in here is rolling their eyes. We know (laughs) we don't have it all together, and we feel like a fraud. And so we all experience this sense, this awareness that we are imposters in some way, shape, or form. And we really, if we think about it, we experience this in our faith quite a bit. Because as Christians, we say that we follow the creator God, the one who made it all, the one who loves us and sent his son to die for us, and then we forget about him the next day. (laughs) Right? And so we sense, and, and so as this, this recognition comes up and we confess our sin and go through that process of repentance, we so easily start to feel like, man, I am just a fraud. I am not much of a Christian at all. And then we start to doubt our faith. I'm looking around the room and I'm seeing yeah, this, this, this is connecting. We feel this way a lot. Well, that's what's going on in our text today. Let me remind you where we're coming from in 1 Thessalonians. As a couple weeks ago, we looked at the way Paul, Timothy, and Silas reminded the Thessalonian church of their central hope, that the resurrection of the dead, the restoration of our bodies, and the consummation of the kingdom of God were imminent, that they were going to happen that it was a guarantee, and that that hope was wrapped up in the faith we have in Jesus Christ, our salvation offered by grace. And Paul was telling them in this letter, it is coming, it is happening. Why was this so important to to, to remind them in that moment? Because they were doubting their faith. They were wondering what's gonna happen to those whom I love who have died, but also, am I really saved? Because it seems so hard sometimes to be a faithful, consistent follower of Christ. And so we are reminded of the glorious, triumphant return when Jesus comes in judgment of those outside the kingdom, but in welcoming of those who love them. And so Paul has reminded them of that hope, but then he turns to that next question, am I really saved? How do I hold on to that hope. So if you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 11. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 
through 11. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. It is true, and it is given in love. Let's bow our heads in prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray, amen. Several years ago, I woke up in the middle of the night. I woke up because there had been this dull rumbling sound that slowly turned into a rattling of all the stuff in the house. I sat up and realized, whoa, this is an earthquake. You know what I did? I laid back down and went to sleep because I guess I'm a heavy sleeper. I had never in my life experienced an earthquake before. I have no idea why I sat up in the middle of the night and instantly recognized it. But in the middle of sitting up and recognizing something that should terrify me, I just shrugged and went back to sleep. Thankfully, that little earthquake in Missouri was just a little earthquake. The news coverage kept showing the same one little wall that had broken down over and over again from many angles. So thankfully, I was okay. But it was amazing to me in the following days how I was so unconcerned about something that could have and maybe should have been so significant. I was just asleep. I was sleepy and lazy. And so our first point today is that we are called to be people who are awake. How are we supposed to hold on to our faith? How are we supposed to make sure we don't feel like a fraud all the time? Well, the first thing we can do is to actually be awake. In other words, let's not be unprepared due to laziness. You see, if you look at verse 2, it says that there is going to be a sudden return in verse 2 like a thief in the night. Now, we all know that a thief is not the good guy. The idea of somebody breaking into your house in the middle of the night is quite unnerving. And so this picture we're given is one that is an understanding that it is sudden. Thieves don't usually send us a note saying, I'll be there on March 5th at 1130 at night. They just show up. And it's also full of foreboding, isn't it? This almost threat that when Jesus comes back, it's going to be sudden. And when we hear thief, we go, ooh. That's not good. But we've already said that Jesus' return for those who have faith is glorious. It's a good thing. It's the day in which we are wrapped up in 
basically given a big heavenly hug by Jesus. It's a good day for Christians. So what's going on here? What's this tension at play? Matthew 25, 13, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. It's imminent, but not necessarily immediate. You see, Jesus is saying, I'm coming. It's going to happen. It could be any day. So be prepared, stay awake, but that doesn't mean I'm saying I'm going to be there this afternoon. You don't know when it's coming. In fact, even Jesus himself doesn't know when he's coming. If you want to know how to reject a false teacher, (laughs) if he tells you he knows what day Jesus is coming back, you can never listen to that fool again, right? Because Jesus makes it abundantly clear that we do not know when he's coming, but As those who live in a broken world, we have to stay awake and alert. Why? Because our Savior is coming. He's coming back, and it's going to be wonderful as we get to to go up and meet him in the sky and come down and participate with him in restoring the heavens and the earth. The next image we're given as we're talking about this sudden return is labor pains, right? It says, it will come... In verse 3, there is peace and security and sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains, as upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. This is describing the people who say there is peace and security. The image there is those who are going about their life thinking it's all okay. I don't need God. I don't need a Savior. I've got my life together. Everything is good. It's dandy. It's fine. I don't need that. And, And we're told for them... This is going to be not so pleasant. Any woman here who's had a baby, it's a beautiful thing to have a child, but they also, we also know it's hard. It hurts. I don't personally know. I've just watched the, the pain and the difficulty. But we know that it's not just this happy, glorious moment. It is something that once it starts, labor pains, there's no going back. Once that day comes... The baby's coming. And that's the picture we have here is when Jesus comes back in his return for those who are saying, I've got it all together. I'm fine. When Jesus comes back, there's no second chance. There's no turning back. So this is a bit of a scary moment for those who do not have faith. And that's where we start to see this contrast really flesh out. Those who have faith in Jesus Christ, this is happy dancing for joy moment. For those who do not have faith in Jesus Christ, there's no second chance. There's no turning back. It's a day of pain and terror. And so, yes, we should be awake. And then the next image we're given is this contrast between night and day. Right? And and the point, of course, we know that you know, Jesus prayed at night. night. Night itself is not bad, but there's a contrast between nighttime and daytime. At night is when bad stuff typically happens. When I was growing up, we had just a kind of saying in my household, nothing good happens after midnight. It's like as a high school kid, I can go do things with my friends and come home before dark, but once, once you kind of cross a line at night, that's when the really shady stuff happens, right? We all kind of intuitively know this. And so the idea that we're seeing here is that Paul is saying in this letter, Christians, you are people of the day. You are people who live in light. You have seen the divine revelation of Holy Scripture. You have met Jesus. You are not that. 
You are not the people who do the things that happen at night. Sleeping is one of the things that happens at night. And so we, from, from a couple weeks ago, if you remember, the idea of sleep, what about those who are asleep? It's a picture of death, those who have died. And now we've kind of moved into not just death, but those who we might say are dead in sin. Literally alive, but not made alive in Christ. Literally alive, but living as though dead, spiritually speaking. And so now we have moved into this idea that we are those who are called to live as children of light, children of the day. Our hope is wrapped up in that Jesus will come back and it'll be a bright and glorious day. The wedding feast of our Savior is going to be amazing. And then there are those who do that which happens at night. They are asleep. They are not awake. They are not paying attention. They are not alert. They have not heard and responded to the good news. So don't be like me. Don't just go back to sleep. When you hear that good news, respond. Be awake. One of my favorite Pixar movies is a weird one in some ways. The main character doesn't talk because he's a little trash compactor on wheels. His name is Wally, and Wally falls in love with a little robot girl named Eve. I don't think that's an accident, by the way, but that's not where we're going. As you go through the story and Eve goes up to, to a spaceship because Earth has been destroyed, Wally in love with her follows her. He can, grabs onto the spaceship and ends up on going through the stars. And you know what's on this spaceship? A bunch of fat, lazy, frankly stupid human beings. They are so out of shape, they can't hardly even stand up. They scoot around with screens in front of them and are entertained to death. And then we learn that they have done this to themselves. You see, these are people who we would say are distracted by everything around them to the point of not even seeing the world they live in. And all of a sudden, it doesn't feel like some cartoon sci-fi. That sounds just like today. So we are told, secondly, first we must be awake, but two, we must be sober. To be sober is not simply talking about alcohol, but but to be sober-minded, to not be so unprepared for the return of Jesus because of our distractions in life. So let me ask you, when we think more specifically about sobriety, why is drunkenness a sin. And by the way, alcohol is a gift from the Lord to be used properly. Drunkenness in the Bible is always a sin. So why is drunkenness a sin? It's kind of a weird question. Well, it's because at the end of the day, you're muting the image of God, your ability to do the very things that make you unique in all of creation. That's why you can have a sip, and it's not a sin, but a bottle and it's a sin, is because you're actually assaulting the very thing that God has called you to be. That's why being high on marijuana, for example, would be the same idea, is you're muting your ability to image God, to be creative, to be thoughtful, to be loving, to be kind. You're muting that. Well, can we do that with something besides alcohol? Absolutely. Man, we could, we could t- 
tune out our neighbors by staring at Netflix all day. We could watch so many football games that we know every football player that we'll never meet and don't know the name of the person who lives across the street. We can be so amazed by what's on a cable news channel or maybe just the gossip channel between me and my friends that we have failed to be prepared for the return of our king. So we're not called only to avoid drunkenness, literally, yes, we should, but we're called to be sober-minded. Another way of saying this, maybe in a more positive sense, is we're called to be wise. And I know you're gonna, you're gonna tire of me saying this, but wisdom is skill in the art of godly living. It does take knowledge, but it's actually something we practice and do, and it requires context. It's hard work. To be sober-minded means that we actually engage with the complexity of life, that we actually engage with the nuances of the people we love and care for and realize that I'm probably not always right and maybe I can learn from that person. But then there's also things we can, lines we can never cross because the scriptures make it clear what is good and true and beautiful. It's hard work. So if we're constantly distracted, if we're constantly entertaining ourselves to death, if we're constantly drunk on the things of this world, we can't actually do wisdom. We can't know truth. We can't love truth. We can't do truth. We can't be changed by the truth, capital T truth, the truth that's found in the scriptures, if we're just constantly distracted. Here's a great definition or comment from a commentator. To be drunk spiritually is to imbibe too much of the world's way of looking at things and not enough of the way God views reality. To be intoxicated with the world's wine is to be numbed to feeling any fear in the present of a coming judgment. Do you see it around you? People who numb themselves from the reality of a holy God in all the ways that we do, they're setting themselves up for destruction Brothers and sisters, not only should we be awake, but we have to be sober-minded so that, one, we are ready, and two, so that we can help others be ready for the return of our Savior. Holly plants those bushes. They trigger me. They give me nightmares because I used to clean windows. And what is a holly bush good for? If nothing else, it's for putting in front of your window to keep burglars out. And so when I would clean windows, the houses that wanted to be really secure, I got torn up by those holly bushes. But here's the thing about those holly bushes that you put in front of your window to keep burglars out, is they're most effective when they're cultivated, when they're cared for, when they're healthy. A dried up holly bush, even though it might look prickly, actually just kind of crumbles beneath the weight of a burglar or a window cleaner. But those that have been cared for, that are healthy and strong, those green leaves, they are not soft. They are horrible and sharp. See, here's the thing with those, though. You can tell how healthy they are, how effective they are, just by looking at them, can't you? The same is true with our faith. We're told in our text today to put on spiritual armor, aren't we? Look at verse five. He says, you are children of light. We've got to start with what's true. You are children of light, children of the day. You are not of the night or darkness. How did we come to that position? How did we come to that status? By faith in a savior that loves us. 
Not by being good, not by having all the doctrine right, not by becoming an elder, not by serving as a deacon, not by being on women of faith council or anything like that, but simply by trusting that Jesus is who he says he is. You are now a child of light. That is who you are. That is your central identity. And so then what do you do? Verse 8, you put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So what is a breastplate all about? Well, it's our protecting our heart. That's what the breastplate does. And so if we're gonna talk about faith and love, have you ever asked the question, how do love and faith actually protect me? Well, it's a lot like that holly bush. If we actually cultivate it, it becomes strong and powerful, and it even is somewhat beautiful. But it's got those thorns to keep the bad guys out. And so faith first is faith in Jesus Christ. That's our gospel. If you're asking the question, am I a fraud? Am I suffering with this, this sense of imposter syndrome? I'm not sure if I'm really saved. What do I do? I sinned again today. Let me tell you that that is the point of the gospel. Because you and I, until Jesus comes back, will live in these broken sinful bodies. Until he comes back, this is our lot, that we are already redeemed, being made new, but not yet glorified, not yet perfected. And so, yes, brothers and sisters, when you feel that imposter syndrome rise up, we start with our faith, the doctrine of salvation. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. That's not perfect knowledge. That's trusting our God. Our faith is in Jesus Christ, James 2.19 says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. We're not talking about general belief, we're talking about trusting Jesus. If you trust Jesus and then you go and sin, guess what? Trust him all the more because he came and died for you knowing that you would sin again and again and again. You are not surprising your Savior. So we trust that gospel. That is our faith. Then the idea of love, well, we all know 1 Corinthians 13. We've all been to weddings. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Don't you want that to describe you? Do you recognize that if we seek to live this out by the grace of God, by the trust in the, in, in, uh, the outworking of the Holy Spirit in our lives, if we seek to live this out, we will be like that healthy holly bush. The assaults of the enemy cannot harm somebody who is strong and healthy in this regard. Love, which is an expression of being kind to others, starts with what is already in your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit and flows out. And in doing that, it is a powerful protectant against the assaults of doubt and the evil one. But also then we have, well, I would say faith and love protect us not only from the outside, but they they protect us from us. They keep us being reminded of our justification, sanctification, and power of the Holy Spirit. It's a cooperation in the formative work of faith as we go out, and it keeps us focused on the needs of others instead of being navel gazers who torture ourselves unnecessarily. And then verse eight, we talk about the helmet of hope. Well, hope is, now we've shifted from kind of those feelings things which scare some of us 
to knowledge. So our, our idea of salvation is not just a feeling, but it is actually based in who we are. You are a whole person. It is good and right that you might break out crying while singing a song of praise because God made you that way. It is appropriate and good because you are a whole person. And then we're reminded that our relationship with our Savior is not simply knowledge, but it's a relationship with with the real, knowable, revealed person of Jesus Christ. And then we have in our hope in our knowledge, we go back to where we started in First Thessalonians in, in uh, chapter 4, where we're reminded that we have hope for the resurrection, restoration, and dominion of our Savior. That hope, we cling to it by faith and in the grace offered in Jesus Christ. And then finally, verse 10 reminds us that we are those, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, who are alive. Jesus Christ died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, this is saying that whether it's me or my great-grandmother who has passed away many years ago, whether you are alive or dead, if you had faith in Jesus Christ, you will be resurrected on that glorious day. You will be given a glorious body and you will celebrate with your Savior forever. And therefore, We encourage one another to live with him, starting now, with an eye towards the eternal wedding feast of our Lord. Let me bow. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that you are true. We thank you that you are holy and mighty. And we thank you that you love us. And as we cling to the hope offered in the gospel, we ask that you would meet us who so often feel like frauds because we know we have indwelt sin that is so hard to put to death. But remind us that we are saved by grace, not by being good. We are connected to you by faith, not by having it all together. And so we ask that you would bless us now as we go to be those who are as a shining city on a hill inviting others to come to this wedding feast. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray, amen. Please stand and sing our hymn of response, I Sing the Mighty Power of God.